Well, uh, a long time ago, I used to say a while ago, but it's starting to be a long time ago, while I was still in grad school, um, I was sitting peacefully on the floor of a gazebo in the middle of North Park University's campus, which was in the middle of the North Park neighborhood, in the middle of the city of Chicago. And the campus there isn't very big. It's surrounded by all of the urban energy of America's third largest city. And what's different about Chicago as compared to L.A., which would be number two on the list, and Houston, which is number four on the list, has to do with its population density. There are 12,000 people per square mile on average in the city of Chicago. Now, to give that a frame of reference to you, Seattle, which cracks the top 10 list of densities in the, in the U.S., Chicago's density is 50% more than, like, areas of Seattle. So I, I'm pointing that out because if, if you've never experienced that, like, how much noise 12,000 people per square mile makes... It's incredible, and there's always someone or something moving in a hurry. I mean, you talk about the hustle and bustle of the city, that's what it is to me. And so the idea of enjoying silence, let alone solitude in that kind of setting, is kind of laughable. And yet here I tranquilly sat in my little gazebo, gazing out on this patch of green space. I don't even know if it was a quarter acre, half an acre, surrounded by multi-story campus buildings. And the, the words of Psalm 131 came to my mind. I have calmed and quieted my soul, Lord. Psalm 131 one of the shortest blessed psalms in all of the book there. Uh, there's only three verses. And it may have been written by King David himself, although we don't know for sure. It's one of the psalms traditionally ascribed to him, uh, which kind of gives it this like interesting royal flair, even though it's kind of non-typical as psalms go. So imagine, if you will, that the king himself is comparing him himself, uh, the second verse, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. That's just kind of weird to think about the king making that comparison. I mean, even the people of Seattle might think that's kind of odd. But still, the image is vivid, is it not? It brings to mind one of peace and serenity, of, of beauty, intimacy, hope, of knowing your place in the world and feeling content with it. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century English Baptist preacher, called Psalm 131 one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Eugene Peterson, the 20th century pastor, writer, translator of the Message Bible Version, wrote that in Psalm 131, the words are plain, but difficult to grasp with our emotions. For me, another old adage comes to mind, less is more. So last week we started a new series on the Psalms of Ascent, and there are 15 Psalms of Ascent. Uh, uh, appearing, they appear together in the book of Psalms, starting at 120 and going through 134. And sometimes you, you'll hear them referred to differently. You know, there's, they're the Psalms of Ascents, 
there's songs of ascent, and then, you know, collectively there's psalms of ascent. So you just pick one. It's all one and the same. Julia launched us off in our series last week. She preached on Psalm 131, and uh, if you didn't hear her message, uh, jump on YouTube and watch it. It was fantastic. And I left last week thinking of a couple of things after her message. The first is, I never, ever want to enter a lava tube. Do you? (laughs) I I mean, I'm going to need a whole lot more than desperate prayers uh, to God to carry me through that one especially when it's near an active volcano. Okay, that's just, I can't even go there. Two, Julia's a really good preacher, isn't she? And when she said, I was really surprised that they asked me to, you know, begin this series off, I told her during our staff meeting last week, you know, I asked you because I knew you were capable. And man, was she. She brought the word to us. I just remember thinking about, um, you know, praying desperate prayers to God to surrender our situation to him no matter how dark it is, and then this is the part that I remember, because all God, all he needs to do is just light the next step. Just light the next step. That's so often how God leads us through difficult times. This week, we're going to dive into Psalm 131, and maybe instead of dive, I should say we're going to climb, right? Because these are the Psalms of Ascent. And what's up with that name? It's not just the collective, like they're called lots of different things. Why are they called that? It's in their title in your Bible, okay? So we know these are the Psalms of Ascent because it's literally written there in Scripture. What does that mean? The word ascent is literally going up. These are the going up Psalms. And there could be a couple explanations for going up. Maybe it's a metaphor for going up to God. Uh, Scholars also suggest that these were like choral pieces that they would sing during um, temple worship sessions. Uh, We don't actually know. Uh, If it wasn't a choir singing, maybe individuals sang them as they climbed the steps to the temple because there was a lot of steps. You had to go up to the temple. Um, But the kind of consensus view is that pilgrims sang these psalms as they went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is at elevation compared to a lot of the other nation of Israel. And so you had to go up to Jerusalem and they would say these songs three different times a year. Because they had these religious festivals, huge things. All, all the Israelites were supposed to go to them. There was one in the, there was Passover in the spring. There was another Pentecost, different than our Pentecost, but that's why it's named that in the summer. And then there was the festival of the booths in the fall. And so three times a year, you'd have these pilgrims going to Jerusalem. And they, they believed that this was a just common kind of part of their journey. Maybe it's all of the above. We don't know. But for a really long time, even though the meaning of psalm of ascents was completely lost on me, I had no idea that that's why they were called that, I've had a special place in my heart for Psalm 131. It would be automatically in my top three favorite psalms. And maybe it's because it's short. I don't know. Like, I was originally drawn to it because I could memorize that one, right? I got one down. But let's read this together. And I invite you to stand if you're able. Psalm 131. Together. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. 
I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. Please have a seat. So way back in 1980, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's still in print 45 years later. It's about these psalms. And each chapter features a different psalm, uh, kind of as he works his way through the, the book. It's a way for, way for him to highlight, you know, people of faith do these sorts of things. Uh, one's about discipleship. Another psalm's about repentance. One's about worship, community. There's all sorts of themes. 131 is about humility. Verse 1, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. John Bailey, a Scottish theologian, once said this, humility is the obverse side of confidence in God, whereas pride is the obverse side of confidence in self. Humility is the obverse side of confidence in God, whereas pride is the obverse side of confidence in self. I read that multiple times, and it didn't click because I was just thinking, oh, obverse, it's like the reverse. You know, it's like the flip side. You know, you know humility, the flip side, confidence in God. No, that's not technically accurate. Obverse and reverse are like sides of a coin. Okay, the obverse side is the side that everyone sees. It's meant to be the front The reverse side is the back. So that changes the meaning, doesn't it? It's like, oh, humility, the thing that all of us see. Well, what's behind that is a confidence in God. Whereas when you see pride, what's behind that is confidence in self. I know some of you are thinking, what's wrong with self-confidence? Nothing. Unless that confidence is entirely based on me, myself, and I. That's just pride. Whereas humility is founded in a confidence in someone else, the God who made us. True biblical humility is just that. It's understanding your place. It's understanding the relationship between creature and our creator. That's what biblical humility truly is. And most instructive for us this morning is the way in which Eugene Peterson in his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, framed this discussion of humility, how he described 131. And I'm going to lean heavily on it for us this morning because it really helps unlock this psalm. And the metaphor he uses is about gardening, farming, and, you know, I'm a sucker for all those. So, Uh, Peterson says this, Psalm 131 is a maintenance psalm. It is functional to the person of faith as pruning is functional to the gardener. It gets rid of that which looks good to those who don't know any better and reduces the distance between our hearts and their roots in God. So when Peterson says that this is a maintenance psalm, it's not a negative connotation. It's not like saying, oh, that person is really high maintenance, right? No, maintenance has to do with uh, a continuous attending to. You know, we do maintenance to our car all the time. We got to put gas in it or we have to plug it in. Uh, it, it needs oil. 
or you have to plug it in. Like, I don't know, like things are changing, right? But, but the idea is that there's this continuous kind of thing that you have to pay attention to. That applies to our faith. We fossilize relationships. You know, you, oh, we got, you get married and you fossilize these feelings in this moment in that time and nothing ever changes. Well, guess what? In five and 10 and 20 years, you're looking at each other thinking we're just roommates. No, relationships are meant to grow and change and evolve and you make investments in them. You perform maintenance on them. So, so important. Um, just like the plants and the trees in your yard need regular attending to, so does our faith. You know, we're kind of in the window here in western Washington where uh, lots of pruning needs to happen in your yard unless you don't like it, in which case you just let it go or you replace those plants when they're overgrown. But this is, this is especially for fruit trees and, you know, grapevines, anything like all the things in my yard that I really dearly love. I'm like, oh man, I got to get on this because they're going to start to, I feel like they're going to start to bloom soon. But I'll never forget the first time I pruned an apple tree, it was totally nerve wracking. Corey and I had just, you know, bought a, our first home and it came with this beautiful garden in the backyard and not like a vegetable garden. It was a landscape garden and man, was it overgrown. It hadn't had any love for a really long time. We had no idea what we were doing. And most shockingly, like something bloomed in the yard like every month. The, the home had been owned by a lady who was a master gardener and it, we, were, we were terrified to touch any of it. And right in the middle of the backyard was this ancient apple tree. And my kids used to climb it and build tree forts in it all the time when they were little. I mean, it, it was truly amazing. And the first year that we were there, I didn't do anything. And there were very few apples. Uh, the ones that were there were like way, you couldn't even reach them. And so I, I, I started thinking like, how can I get these lower so that I can reach them and my kids can reach them, right? And I had no, I was terrified to do anything to the tree because I was, I didn't know anything about pruning. So I bought books, I watched YouTubes, and I even signed up for a, a pruning class at a local nursery. And so armed with my shears, I went out one afternoon and started butchering my tree. I mean, it looked, it looked terrible. The phrase Peterson says about pruning gets rid of that which looks good to those who don't know better. That, that was me. I just kept cutting. This is what they told me to do. I just kept cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting. And it definitely terrified Corey when she saw how much I had cut off. But then the most extraordinary thing happened. It didn't die. It bloomed. Like everywhere. Out of branches and places where I never conceived blooms could even happen. And that fall, we had the most staggering amount of apples that I could have ever dreamed of. This was a lesson in how pruning focuses growth and makes things more fruitful. This is why Jesus says in John 15, I'm the true vine, he's talking about grapevines, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And then he continues on in verse 4. Remain in me, and I also remain in you, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. 
Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15 is a hugely important passage for followers of Jesus. In fact, it's one of the passages that we base, those of you that are going through the life shape groups, you know, we base one of our shapes on that. Really, really important. If you and I and other disciples are like branches in this metaphor, what is Jesus encouraging us to do? Well, I mean, he wants us to be more fruitful. But we can't produce the fruit ourselves. He's making that clear. No, in fact, we can't really even grow on our own. That's just a byproduct for us when we stay connected to Jesus. Remain, remain, remain. Or the old King James verb is abide, abide, abide. That means to stay connected, rooted in Jesus. And there are so many ways that we can be intentional about that. That's what we were talking about just a minute ago in our interview. You know, the point of spiritual disciplines, they're tools to help us connect to God. And so all of those practices help us attend to and hear God's voice. They help us to just dwell in his presence. Occasionally, the father, the gardener, will prompt us whisper to us about certain habits of ours or behaviors or mindsets or ways that we just treated others. He prompts us because he wants to prune out of our life these bad things because it's in the way of the fruit he wants to produce in us and through us. It may come as a surprise to us when we feel that pruning or when we hear that whisper. Because pruning gets rid of that which looks good to those who don't know any better. Pruning is uncomfortable, but preferable, actually. It's how God produces fruit in our life. And so the writer of Psalm 131, the reason why it's a maintenance song, maybe even King David himself recognized this, he's reflecting on pruning away a couple of things. The first is wild ambition, And the second is infant-like dependency. The psalm begins, My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Or the message puts it this way, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasize grandiose plans. Of course, the idea being conveyed here is about humility. But look how it's being described. It's described with three negatives. If you go back to the verse 1 in the NIV there, back up a verse, three negatives. Not proud, not haughty, not concerned. So the the first piece, my heart is not proud. In, In Hebrew, the heart is like we would conceive of our mind. You know, in effect, He's saying, God, I'm not thinking arrogantly, which I know as soon as you kind of say that out loud, it like proves the opposite, right? But it's a prayer. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you say that to God? Oh, God, I am so humble, right? That doesn't sound right. No, you say, God, my heart is not proud. Uh, the eyes being haughty. 
I, I mean, I don't know when the last time you used the word haughty in a sentence. I don't know that I've ever, <laughs> I've ever said that, right? Haughty is a synonym for pride and arrogance. Um, these are English words that translators have put in there so it makes sense to us today. The literal word here means exalted. Uh, some translations say it this way, my eyes are not raised too high. In the preceding, about the heart, that literally is my heart is not lifted up. Not lifted up, not raised too high. What gives, these are the songs of ascent, right? We're supposed to be climbing the mountain. Yeah, but whose mountain is it? God's mountain. God's at the top. Um, this is like the complete opposite of what our culture tells us we should do. Remember when pruning looks like you're getting rid of the stuff that, you, that looks good to people who don't know any better? Well, our culture tells us that, you know, you think of the things we tell our kids, aim high, right? Be all you can be. Uh, set high, a big, hairy, audacious goal and go for it. Strive, work, sacrifice, do whatever it takes to get to the top. Don't just climb the ladder to be a supervisor or a VP. No, aim for the CEO, right? Lift your eyes up high. That's just like basic wisdom, I think, in the United States today. Uh, what this is talking about, this whole, the whole idea, ambition isn't bad, but there's degrees to it, right? There's intensities to it. Wild ambition it has, to do, it has to do with our need for control and independence. It's like the oldest temptation in the book, as, as in the Bible. Why did Adam get tossed out of the Garden of Eden? Why did Lucifer get thrown out of heaven? It's because they were trying to be like God. It had to do with their ambition, like, oh, I want to be that. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. Um, even Jesus, the three temptations that the devil tempted him with in the wilderness, one was, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down to me. But you're going to get all the kingdoms of the world? That's all about ambition and playing on that brokenness that's inside each and every one of us. Eugene Peterson writes, what is described in Scripture as the basic sin, the sin of taking things into your own hands, being your own God, grabbing what is there while you can get it, is now described, now as in today, described as basic wisdom. Improve yourself by whatever means you're able. Get ahead regardless of the price. Take care of me first. As opposed to realizing that our lives are lived well only when they're lived on the terms of their creation, with God loving and us being loved, with God making and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us responding. So I think God has been working on this one in my life for a really long time. And as I look back, I can kind of pick out several different rounds of pruning <laughs> that, that honestly started with me in high school, high school and college. And I don't, 
think I would have even necessarily noticed it or been able to name it because our culture disguises this kind of ambition as really as a virtue. You know, it's okay to have aspirations. It's okay to have goals and to want to excel. But there's a point when the t- the s- it just tips it over into wild drive, or into, you know, overdrive. And, like, people applaud. Like, this is great. It's not great. I remember in my mid-30s, I went through a season where I, I felt really stymied in my career as a pastor. And I kept asking God, is this really what you want me to do? And um, I kept looking around to my friends, closest friends, and they were getting promoted left and right. One of them became partner at a law office. Um, another was chosen in like this employee buyout where he was going to become one of four owners of this fairly, uh, what I would consider a fairly large company. Like, oh my gosh. And another was running for state senate. Here I was in pastoral ministry. I just had coffee with someone last week who told me my shoes were ugly. You know, I mean, <laughs> that literally happened. i like, what am I doing here, God? This is such a dead end. And the temptation, I couldn't even feel happy for my friends, and I knew that was wrong. But the temptation was either leave pastoral ministry, find something more upwardly, upwardly mobile. I, I know that I couldn't do that. That would be just, you know, blatant sin. So I'll just climb the ladder in my own career field, right? And then it felt like doors just kept closing after, like, okay, so where are you climbing? I, I don't know. I just have this unmet ambition in my life. And the invitation of God was, relax. I've got this. I've got you. Don't concern yourself with great matters. Lower your eyes. Surrender your pride. Live on the terms of your creation with God loving and us being loved, with God making and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us responding. Let go of your wild ambitions. And when we start to do that, allow God to prune that stuff out of our life, the next verse, the next part of the psalm starts to make perfect sense. In fact, it's meant to be kind of held in tension with the first part of the psalm. God wants to prune out wild ambition and bring us to a point of surrender and reliance on him, but there's a type of reliance. There's a type of dependence that's more mature and healthy. And that's where God wants to take us. The imagery in the psalm here is vivid, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child. I am content. What a beautiful image. Uh, Amazing, actually. Like a weaned child with its mother, I am content. What's that mean? That that God is a woman? No. It's a metaphor. Maybe God, yes, definitely is nurturing, but you think about the relationship that's being vividly described there. An infant needs their mother as a matter of life and death. 
but a child who's been weaned still needs their mother, but the relationship has changed. It's a beautiful image. The word weaned means to treat kindly, to be helpful to someone, to complete or to perfect. In the context of our relationship with God, there's a process of growth that occurs in us or should occur as we mature in our faith with God. Peterson puts it this way, God does not want us neurotically dependent on him, but willingly trustful in him, and so he weans us. I think of, you know, in my own journey with God, there were some major mountaintop moments. And we need those every now and then, a good old turbocharge. But there seemed to be more of them when I was younger and younger in my faith. Uh, And then they just kind of stopped. And I remember thinking, like, what's up with that, God? What's up with that? Uh, Where are all the miraculous signs that just kind of seem to go away? Maybe I was just imagining all that stuff. I don't know. Well, what if we started to love God just for God's sake? What if we didn't need God to do anything for us and we instead just enjoyed being with him? What if we learn to calm and quiet ourselves just to be in his presence? Like a weaned child with its mother. Imagine how that might change our prayer lives. You know, instead of this laundry list of stuff that you need God to do for you this minute, what if we went to God in prayer instead just to be with him? Nothing wrong with asking God, I need this. Or there's nothing wrong with, you know, having a a prayer list. But do you know what I mean? It's when our relationship just began, you know, he's just the genie up in heaven. And I, I, I gotta have you do this for me now. God wants to wean us off of that because there's something more, something better with him out there. That's why I was sitting in the gazebo in the middle of campus so long ago. I'd calmed and quieted my soul. I just wanted to spend a few unhurried moments. Honestly, it felt like a moment in solitude with the Lord. And I failed to mention earlier that it was finals week. I had a mountain of stuff to accomplish and get done. And normally, I would have been so frantic because I needed those grades. I needed God to help me get all this done. I needed to do this and to do that. But God had freed me from that need. Instead, I... I just wanted to enjoy the life around me, to be content, to be with God. And you'd think I'd have it all figured out so very long ago, but I didn't. This has been a constant cycle for me of forgetting like, oh, yes, let go of all that ambition and instead calm and quiet yourself to be with the Lord. It's unbelievable. That's why I'm drawn to this psalm. It describes a way of life where I don't have to be in the center or perform at the highest standards or do anything except live in willful trust with Jesus.
Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you, and I, I know this is a, there are personalities, uh, all of us are so different. Um, I, don't, I don't know where this lands, but there's definitely, all of us struggle with ambition, and some of us struggle with having too much ambition more than others. So Lord, wherever it is, prune it out. Help us to realize the balance between having goals and aspirations, but that's so different than just striving and driving to, to, to do or be and achieve. Help us to let that go and instead choose to sit with you, to be with you. To, this, this is a kind favor that you're doing us, Lord, to be with you. And we pray that just like Israel, the hope that that can bring, the freedom that that can bring into our lives is truly amazing. We pray this in your precious name.